Thank you, Pastor David. It's good to be here. I love your pastor. He is an awesome man of God filled with wisdom. And I love the fact that we serve a God that's into the details. I love the fact that we serve a God that will send him on vacation with his kids while the fire's at his house. You know, God, God, we ponder our ways, but God orders our steps. So he is faithful. It's an honor to be here today. And I was kind of feeling myself. I'm not Gino, so I don't have that many outside speaking engagements. But I was walking around Freedom like, yo, I'm going to the vineyard next Sunday. I'm just letting you know I'm dropping this on you. And Joey is like, yeah, man, they call me every month. You know, so... It is what it is, but it's good to be here. Why don't you take a moment and stand with me if you're able, and I promise you this will be the only time I ask you to stand, and open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1, or you can read on the screens to my right and to my left, Uh, and we're going to be reading from 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 12. Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And then he says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Amen? Of whom I am the worst. I want you to look at somebody and say, you are the worst. All right, don't you don't have to look at that one person that's been bothering you in church. Just, Just, it was rhetorical more so. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners. He didn't say I was. He says I am the worst, and I am the worst of sinners, that Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray, church. Father, we sang today in our worship time to fill us up. Uh, And, Lord, we recognize that to be an act of your Holy Spirit pouring into us, overflowing out of us. So, Lord, I pray for every person under the sound of my voice. Release us from distractions and weights and burdens that we've carried, Lord. Give us free access to you, God, to the heavens, Lord, because we know your spirit can speak to every single person wherever they're at. So teach us. Speak. Today we pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Let the church say amen. You guys can be seated in the presence of the Lord. My message today is entitled, Why Alcoholics Are Better Than Christians. Any questions or concerns about this sermon, you need to see your senior pastor. Many years ago in St. Louis, uh, a, a lawyer visited a Christian to transact some business. And before the two parted, his client said to him, I've often wanted to ask you a question, but I've been afraid to do so. He says, well, what do you want to know, asked the attorney. And the man replied, I've wondered why you are not a Christian. And the man just saddened, hung his head down where he was standing. I know enough about the Bible to realize 
that it says no drunkard can enter the kingdom of God, and you know my weakness. He said, you're avoiding my question, continued the believer. Well, truthfully, I can't recall anyone ever explaining how to become a Christian. And picking up a Bible, the client read some passages showing that they are all under condemnation, but that Christ came to save the lost by dying on the cross for their sins, by receiving him as your substitute and redeemer. He said, you can be forgiven if you're willing to receive Jesus. Let's pray together. The attorney agreed, and when it was his turn, he exclaimed, Oh, Jesus, I am a slave to drink. One of your servants has shown me how to be saved. Oh, God, forgive my sins and help me overcome the power of this terrible habit in my life. And right there, he was converted. That attorney's name was C.I. Schofield who later edited the reference Bible that bears its name. I want you to know there is hope for anyone. There is hope for anyone. I know that it's dangerous to start a sermon with a title, Why Alcoholics, let me say it differently, Why Alcoholics Are Better at Being a Christian Than Most Believers. How about that? And as a starting point, let me say this. Every person under the sound of my voice knows someone that has completely destroyed their life through addiction. You know someone like that? We know the dangers of addiction. We know how low the drink and other addictions can take a person. And in a church this size, there might be people here struggling today with addiction. The reason I wanted to discuss this is because When that person reached the lowest point in their life, they call it rock bottom. When they reach rock bottom and and all of their life is in shambles, they stand up and say, I'm going to go to this meeting. And the meeting is called a what? AA meeting. Some of you in the back like, I don't even know what he's talking about. That's fine. And what they experience when they go to those meetings is nothing short of the way that Jesus wants the church to be. The 12 steps were based on, get this, the Bible. It was based out of the Bible. And if we walked into this place more like people who have hit rock bottom, who have nothing else left to give, we would be a stronger church. So I wanted today to look at some of the behaviors of an AA group, and maybe we will find behaviors that might help us as the body of Christ. You guys ready? Here's the first behavior in an AA group. My sin is always in the present tense. If you're taking notes, write that down. My sin is always in the present tense. The first time you go to a meeting, everyone, even the person who's leading the meeting says, hello, my name is Thaddeus, and I am. My name is Jim. And I am a cocaine addict. My name is Sarah, and I struggle with heroin. You cannot walk into an AA group and say, my name is Thaddeus. I'm glad to be here. I used to be an alcoholic, but thank you, God, I'm cured. They would be, get, get out of this meeting. It would be over for you because they insist on the perilous use of the present tense. You are never cured. You just simply stop drinking. 
You are never recovered. You are only in a state of recovering. And you are reminded on a weekly basis that you are only one slip up, one drink, and falling into ruin again. Do you, church, I don't know what's going on over here, Pastor David, but do you guys believe the Bible? I mean, you believe it's God's truth to us, right? His inspired word. You believe all of the scriptures just by a show of hands. All of the scriptures. Good. Well, that's good. You should. I believe the scriptures too. I want you to listen then to God's truth coming from the apostle Paul. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Everyone needs to agree with this thought. Christ came into the world to save sinners and I am the worst. Let me submit to you that that's a statement of fact. Paul might just be the worst sinner on the planet. Paul is a master of the Greek language. He's not stumbling around saying stuff. Peter says his writings are difficult to understand. He's so sharp. He's so smart, you know. But Paul says in the inspired word of God, I am the worst of sinners. Paul was morally superior I was a Pharisee. I was studied under Galilee. He had reasons to boast. He was impatient with people. Scholars want to throw away the book of Galatians. You know that, right? Because Paul just get, it's almost like he woke up and was mad at some people and started writing, hey, I got an idea. They want to keep going back to the law? Those people, those people, why don't you just, let's not do circumcision. Why don't they just get castrated? Paul, Paul, should you write that? We don't like, there's some aspects about Paul. Paul, I wish the knife would slip. But here's a guy who is aware of his own sinfulness. You could have come to Paul and said, Paul, I just cheated on my wife. Can you help me? Paul has a history, though, of his walk. You might have done that. But I was standing there when they threw the stones at Stephen co-signing. There are, there are things in his past that are so weighty. And, and, and I did nothing when they were stoning Stephen. And, and his moral superiority within Judaism made him an accomplice to murder. He is a murderer. That's why he says, I was a violent man before I met Jesus. See, this is, this is who he is. This is who he understands himself to be. But church, all addiction is taking something good and twisting it into the service of evil. Taking something that's maybe even created for our good and twisting it into something evil. It could be alcohol. It could be sex. It could be food. It could be drugs. It could be your job. It could be money. Whatever your addiction is, I don't know what it is. Whenever we use good things in the wrong way, we call it abuse. Philip Yancey, the great uh, Christian author, tells the story of a lifelong bachelor who was addicted to pornography. And due to diabetes, he lost all vision in one eye and 90% in the other. And he lived in this filthy house. He rarely went outside. And with his few remaining teeth, he ate whatever Meals on Wheels, the social program delivered to his house to save money for fuel and the bills in the winter. You know, he would do all of these things and he would bundle up in a down jacket and put a coat on in his house just so he can save money. And despite his poverty, he spent spent most of his social security check on X-rated porn. 
And every night he would drag a chair so close to the television monitor and he would fumble to insert a DVD and he would hold a large magnifying glass to scrutinize the naked bodies that were on the screen. I'm not sure that's what God had in mind when he bestowed the subtle gift of our human sexuality. See, whenever we receive gifts from God, we need more than just our wisdom to manage them. And when we mismanage a gift, it becomes something we abuse, and we call that addiction. And addiction, when it grows, like James says, you know, your sin, your thing, each of you all have your own thing. When it grows into something big, ultimately it brings forth what? Death. Sin, it's born, it's birth, and then it grows up. St. Augustine said it this way, evil passes your door first as a stranger, then it enters as a guest, and finally it installs itself as your master. See, every person in an AA group is there for one reason and one reason alone. The downward spiral of their life nearly killed them. So they know that their sin is present. But that's not the way it is in most churches. We like to believe that when we walk into the church and thank you, Lord, I gave my life. Fill me up, God. The glory of the Lord is upon us. And we like to believe that we are now immune to the destructive powers of sin. So when we speak of ourselves, we talk about how we used to be a sinner in the past. And it's easy to believe all of a sudden you are now immune to the effects of sin. But church, Paul never thought about sin in the past tense. Nobody ever wakes up and says, you know what? This is the day I'm going to struggle with sin. Nobody woke up and said, you know what? Today's the day I'm going to become an addict. No, No, that's not how it works. No, you feel pain. You feel rejection, you feel depression, you feel sorrow, you feel loneliness, and you seek something outside of yourself that'll fill that void that you're feeling inside to provide relief. At first, the substance works because it dulls the negative feelings and gives you this euphoric high, but the addiction keeps growing and enlarging the very thing that it was set out to dull in the first place. The relief becomes less, and the pleasure is barely noticeable. You know, Ravi Zacharias says, real despair is not the weariness of pain, but rather the weariness of pleasure. When that thing that brought you pleasure is bringing you now pain, then you will find yourself in a real place of despair. I'm talking to somebody today. And that sin is actually causing real harm. My liver, my lungs, my body, my relationship. And the sin never ends like, oh, man, what a blessed life. Hallelujah. Go on with you. That's not how these cycles end. The cycle ends when the police find child porn at your house. 
The cycle ends when a husband finds his wife cheating on him. The cycle ends in a cop car at your door because of a hit and run. Just look at what's going on in Hollywood and the Me Too movement. The sin always ends in death. Is anybody surprised that if you let your sexual proclivities go, all of these strange things could happen? It never starts like that, though. But it, that sin always ends with dot, dot, dot. People at the bottom know that that sin in their life brings forth death. If I keep going that way, I will die. We all know that the wages of sin is We all know what the bottom could be. Here's a common saying in an AA meeting. Religion is for people who believe in hell. Spirituality is for people who have been there. Look at someone and say, my sin is always in the present tense. Here's the good news. You all ready? Grace is also always in the present tense. Christ came to save sinners, Paul says, of whom I am the worst. But for that reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, all of a sudden Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Do you understand your life is a display for Christ to show off of his immense patience? Trust me, I know some of y'all. He was so patient. He's shining through some of you all a little brighter than others. See, it's possible also for us to easily think that the grace and mercy that we need is something God gave us in our past. So when we go into testimony time, we stand up and and we go into detail. I used to be this guy. I used to do that. And then I was doing these things. And then we end with conversion. God fixed it. Won't he do it? He did it for me. He can do it for you. I'm on the other side. See, an addict might not have fallen off of the wagon for three years, but they can never stand up and declare, I can live today without his grace. Because they wake up with a desire inside of them that is so real. And your desire, the thing we, we all, every person here struggles with something. Can I get an amen? It's the same way. James describes it as your own personal sin. If people ask me, what's your favorite pizza? I say, Aurelio's in Homewood. Because I grew up in Homewood. And when we had parties, we go to Aurelio's and the flavor, it brings this nostalgia. But for other people, maybe you grew up in the city and you like deep dish. It's the same way sin and desires come into our life. There are, there's a situation that happened when you were young and now you struggle with this. Thing. These are, we don't have the luxury of denial. We constantly need more of his present grace. These are some sayings that are posted on the wall at an AA meeting. One day at a time. These would be good sayings at church, wouldn't they? One day at a time. Spiritual progress, not perfection. Came, came to, came to believe. These are signs at an AA meeting. Let go and let God. 
there, and when they leave, there but for the grace of God, I go. When you are an addict, you lose the luxury of denial. But you also are always aware of the links that God is willing to go to bring you back to him. If I ascend into the heavens, you are there. If I make my house in the depths of the sea, you are there. And Paul is like, don't you understand there is this wrestling match that is happening on the inside of all of us. It's a wrestling match, Romans 7 talks about. I I don't understand what I do for what I want to do, I don't do, but what I hate, I do. And then he follows that line of I don't want to do what I, I'm doing what I hate to do. And he follows that line with there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, we tend to rightfully emphasize the freedom and the grace and the forgiveness that we find in Christ, but we fail as believers to adequately emphasize the battle that's going on in each one of us. How much more healthy would we be as a church if we could be honest about our struggles? See, I love the illustration that Yancey used in his book, and it was called A Person as a Company Model of Human Personality. And he says, I operate much like the president of a company. My company or myself comprises many different employees, meaning my feelings, my impulses, my genetic disposition, rational choices. They all share the same facility, and that facility is called my body. As president, I may be responsible for the company, but I do not always have direct control over all of my employees. In fact, frequently, one of them surprises me by taking over. I have an emotional outburst or I make an impulse decision, and I wonder, how in the world did I do that? How did that happen? And just when I think I have the company under control, some employee messes up and undermines what I worked so hard to achieve. I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I don't do, but what I hate, I do. And what you realize is that you might not be the best president for your company. That's why Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest in me. Church, we are more like bankrupt companies that invite a new director, a new president to take over. Would you please take over this bankrupt company? And he comes in with fresh capital. And he builds a stable foundation, and he begins to create unity and corporate health. But one of the keys is to obtain help from other corporations that he has already worked with. And you realize that your company must always rely not only on the director, but on other companies. I'm still talking about the church. Because the next point you realize is this, your freedom is always through dependence. Look at someone and say, you need me. You guys are married. I hope she she didn't even look that. She said, yeah, I have to. Yeah, we, yeah. We need each other desperately. So then church isn't just something you do on a Sunday morning. It's the house groups that you were invited to. Why are they doing that? So someone can come to your house and see your mess. You can't hide too long, you know. They might just show up. Oh, I, I, let me, oh, let me put this away. Let me, oh, let me. 
You need people. Just We need each other desperately, and this becomes a place where desperate sinners come together and admit that their lives were unmanageable, and we all collectively admit that we needed a savior, we needed a new president, we needed a new director, and we need one another. See, but have we turned church into a place where people already have it together? rather than a place where we express our desperate need for God and others. What is it that unites addicts? What makes it possible for one alcoholic to learn from another alcoholic? The foundation that they share, this is my final point today, is not their strengths, but their weaknesses. The foundation they share is not their strength, but their weakness. Each person knows what they cannot do. We need a reminder of this, church. You know, Paul, the Apostle Paul, spoke of his weaknesses over 40 times in the New Testament. If the church, if we, and I'm talking individually, you are the temple of the living God. Collectively, we are the temple of the living God. And we have to be able to come together and admit our weaknesses, admit our brokenness, admit the things that we struggle with rather than condemning people for what they're going through. Huh. You're still struggling with that? Are you serious? You're, you're saved. Like, you're still broken about what happened when you were a kid? Really? Get it together, like me. But if you go to an AA meeting, it doesn't matter what time you show up. They're glad you're there. That's how church should be. I don't, we, Pastor Gino, I don't care what time people show up to church. I don't know what it took for you to get there. I don't know what you fought, fought with the night before, the morning of, but you took all. You come at the last five minutes. God bless you. We love you. God's going to keep moving you forward. This is how the church needs to be. And they look you in the face. They say, keep on coming. Keep on fighting. You got this. We got your back. You keep going. Don't you give up. I'm so glad you made it today. And we want to help you. Here's why. Because I suffer from the same addiction. I'm no better. But for grace. May we as the church learn this. I want to close with a story that I think beautifully displays this idea. I was listening uh, to the story told of the former head pastor of PTL. Some of you guys are old enough to remember those days with Jim Baker and, and the whole fiasco that went on. Jim Baker was at the height of ministry, 20,000-member church, national programs, flying in jets. Um, I don't know. That's just a whole different version of ministry than I see in the first place. 
But at least we know there was this picture of what the world would see as success. And then it all came crumbling down. The infidelity, the money laundering. And he was sentenced to prison. And when he went to prison, and this wasn't a short sentence, this was years in prison. He's out now. And while he was there just to gain favor and to get on, get his time and his sentence shortened, he would clean the bathrooms. And here, he, here was this man who was at the height of his career, now cleaning urinals at a state penitentiary. And one day, as he was cleaning the urinals, just soaked in, in dirt and grime, if you can imagine, someone walks in to visit him. And it happened to be Billy Graham. And he walks over to Jim Baker, and he hugs him. And Jim Baker tells the story. He says, I wept. I wept. And I wept. A person whose life exemplified character and godliness. And in terms of ministry, Billy Graham's career. He was a mighty, maybe one of the greatest evangelists of the last 100 years, goes into a jail cell, stands in uh, this urinal, and he hugs a man who's struggling and says, me too. This is what church needs to be like. May we all learn from our alcoholic friends. And may we become better Christians because of it. God bless you guys.